This is the Intego Mac Podcast, the voice of Mac security, for Thursday, March 10th, 2022. This week's Intego Mac Podcast is a special edition. We'll be defining some of the most common InfoSec terms we regularly use on the podcast. We're calling it the Jargon Episode. Now, here are the hosts of the Indigo Mac Podcast, veteran Mac journalist Kirk McElhern and Indigo's Chief Security Analyst, Josh Long. Good morning, Josh. How are you today? I'm doing well. How are you, Kirk? I'm doing well. Josh and I are both in a secure location, so we're actually using the magic of time travel to present this episode. Yesterday was Apple's recent event where they presented, oh my God, all the wonderful things they presented, but we can't talk about it because we recorded this episode before. We'll have an article on the Intego Mac security blog talking about what's new. Next week, we will give our opinions on all these great new things that they peaked at. Yeah. Oh, and, and that one more thing, that was really impressive. Oh, man. Who, who expected that, right? Who yeah. expected Steve, the hologram of Steve Jobs to come up on stage? That was just amazing. <laughs> and he, oh, I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have said that. Okay. Today, we've been planning to do this episode for a while. We're calling this the jargon episode because we use a lot of jargon. Every industry uses a lot of jargon. But in cybersecurity, there is some really strange jargon with some really weird terms. We use some of these terms in every episode of the podcast, and we don't always take the time to explain what they mean. So we're going to go through some of the terms about security, about attacks, and we're going to explain what they are, why you need to know what they are. And hopefully by the end of this 30-minute podcast, you will know everything about cybersecurity jargon. Josh, where do we begin? All right. Well, I think probably the first place to start would be a vulnerability. When we're talking about vulnerabilities, we're not, of course, talking about somebody who is lonely and feeling bad about themselves or different things like that. We're talking about software or hardware vulnerabilities where there is a flaw that can potentially be exploited. Well, you already introduced another term there, and that's the problem. Sometimes to define one term, you need another term defined. First, just about vulnerability. Every time we talk about Apple security updates, we say that there were seven vulnerabilities fixed and that there is a CVE number, right. which is attached to a vulnerability. And that means? Common vulnerabilities and exposures. Yeah. And, and that number is for the purpose of being able to uniquely identify a particular vulnerability. So you've got one vulnerability that is found in WebKit on one platform, and that same vulnerability may also affect WebKit on a lot of other platforms. So if it affects Mac OS, it may also affect iOS, iPadOS, tvOS, the whole, the whole gamut. Who maintains the CVE database? Is this a government entity? Yeah, there, there are a number of organizations that maintain CVE lists. The NIST, uh, the National Institute of Standards and Technology, is, is one of those databases where you can go and, and look up CVE numbers and find out what products they, they may impact. Okay, so you talked about a vulnerability. I want to give a metaphor for a vulnerability. A vulnerability is a weak beam in a house, right? It's been eaten by termites and something could happen. But in order to take advantage of the vulnerability, you use an exploit. Exactly, right. So you can think about, about exploit as being a verb, right? You exploit something. And an exploit as a noun is the application of that <laughs> exploitation of a vulnerability. So an exploit is 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 just that. It's, it's taking something that is known to be a flaw 
and then putting it in practice, like using that against something or to break into something. Most of the time we're talking about malicious intent here when we're talking about uh, exploits. However, exploits can also be used for non-malicious purposes. Jailbreaking uses exploits. If you want to jailbreak your iPhone, for example, which means that you're kind of sort of breaking it out of the the Apple forced ecosystem where you can only install apps from the App Store. If you want to install third-party apps on an iPhone, you can jailbreak it. And that does require exploiting a vulnerability. So a metaphor for that is the Joker breaking the penguin out of prison in the old Batman TV series? <laughs> Maybe. I think that was a thing. <laughs> okay, so vulnerabilities, how do they happen? Are they just a result of sloppy programming? Well, it's not necessarily sloppy programming. I mean, there can be a number of reasons why software or hardware may be vulnerable. Developers and product manufacturers are are, are just using the best technology that's available at the time. However, at some point down the road, somebody is very likely to find a way to attack that successfully in, in a way that they can exploit it, right? For example, WEP was a wireless standard that stood for Wired Equivalent Privacy. And they were trying to push the idea that, oh yeah, no, wireless is totally safe. However, it turned out that WEP was uh, not the equivalent of a wired network. And it turned out it was actually pretty easy to break into. And even WPA which stands for Wi-Fi Protected Access, even that, the first iterations of that have been found to have vulnerabilities over time. And so we've iterated on that. Now we have WPA3. All of these technologies, no matter what technology you're talking about, there are going to be vulnerabilities that eventually will be discovered. However, yes, it's in, there are cases where vulnerabilities are the result of some boneheaded mistake, something that just didn't get caught before a product was published or, or a service was made available to the public. Okay. So sometimes we talk about zero day vulnerabilities. That sounds like something kind of James Bondish. Yeah. There's some disagreement about ex what exactly constitutes a zero day vulnerability. When we're talking about zero day vulnerabilities, we're talking about things that are known to the public, but have not been patched yet. Where the variability comes in, you know, some people want to say that you should only call something a zero day vulnerability if there are no patches available for it whatsoever and the manufacturer is rushing to, to put out a patch the very first patch for, for this vulnerability. So there's, there's some disagreement about what exactly that means because other people will argue, well, okay, but there is a zero day vulnerability in iOS 14 because we know that there is a vulnerability that applies to that operating system, but that will never be patched. So there, there are some disagreements about that uh, part of the terminology. The reason it's called zero day is because the developer of, of the product or service has had zero days to fix the issue. So there's no time between when it becomes public knowledge and now everybody is vulnerable to attack. Okay, let me try another metaphor. A vulnerability is that we're humans. A zero day is COVID that takes advantage of an exploit in our lungs or our nose. And the patch is the mask and eventually the vaccine. 
Okay. Okay. Yeah, I see where you're, where you're going with that. So we, we often talk about patching vulnerabilities. So that term patch is just an update, a security update that fixes vulnerabilities. So you, you can imagine like, you know, sewing a patch onto a suit. If you've got a rip in it, you just put a little patch over it. And now that rip is gone. Do you know where that term comes from? Where does it come from? Back in the days of paper tapes and punch cards, if you would punch the wrong holes in the thing, you'd put like a, a label on it, a patch on top of the card to block the holes. Oh, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So it's a good visual metaphor there. I'm big on metaphors for this episode because people need another way of visualizing this stuff. So we had the vulnerability and the zero day COVID that was in the wild. We hear this term in the wild a lot. What does it mean? Okay. This is one of those things that often gets confused with zero day. In the wild just means that it's known to be out there. Like, it's known that somebody is using this against somebody else. The terminology that Apple usually uses is actively exploited. In their patch notes, they'll say, Apple is aware of a report that this issue may have been actively exploited. So whenever they say that, they're referring to a vulnerability that is known to be in the wild, meaning that somebody has used it against somebody else in a real world attack. And the opposite of in the wild is a proof of concept. What's that? Yeah, a proof of concept, when we're talking about malware, for example, a proof of concept is is something where somebody shows how it can be done, but they haven't actually distributed this publicly and they're not using it for malicious purposes. They're just showing one way that, for example, a vulnerability can be exploited or they're showing off uh, some clever bit of code that could be used in malware, but it's not actually known to be used in malware in the wild. So if a security researcher discovers something and reports it to a vendor, that's a proof of concept. They say, we found this vulnerability. We're telling you about it so you can patch it before it gets in the wild, right? Right, exactly. And a lot of times exploit developers will create a proof of concept so that they can submit it to the developer. So when the developer goes to patch that vulnerability, when they're trying to even, even before they get to the patching point, when they're just trying to assess it and see, is this person's claim about this vulnerability really legitimate? They want to be able to find out for themselves. And a proof of concept is in terms of um, code that can be used to test whether a vulnerability exists. That's something that somebody who discovers a vulnerability can also submit to the vendor and say, this proof of concept proves that this vulnerability exists in your software or your product. Okay, so I think we've covered the basics here. Vulnerability, exploit, zero day, in the wild, proof of concept. Let's move on to a, a type of attack that is actually fairly common. It's called the denial of service or distributed denial of service. Now, for me, a denial of service is, I don't know, someone's not wearing a mask and they go into a restaurant and the, the maitre d' says you can't come in because you don't have a mask, right? Uh, sure. <laughs> Uh, a, a, a denial of service attack, when, when we're talking about uh, about security, generally, most of the time people are really thinking about a distributed denial of service attack. But let's explain denial of service first. Basically, it just means stopping something that is supposed to be normal operation from happening. 
So a denial of service attack can be anything from on a local computer level, just on on your device, preventing it from behaving correctly. So uh, a local denial of service could be, for example, maybe a web page that causes your iPhone to freeze and and just stop working. And so you have to forcibly reset it or same thing with a computer that could be a type of denial of service attack. Another type of denial of service attack might be attacking a particular server on the internet. Now, more often when you're talking about attacking a server or some infrastructure that has a lot of resources, you're more often talking about a distributed denial of service attack. And in that case, you have a whole bunch of different parties that are all attacking the same target at exactly the same time. Now, those might be, you know, for example, uh, people who are all part of the same hacking group. Maybe they're all uh, launching an attack. More often, though, those attacking systems are actually just infected systems that are being controlled by the bad guys. So they're sending all of the, the systems that they have under their control and targeting one system or one server all at the same time. Okay, now you said something there, talking about a server that has resources. What do you mean by resources? Do they have like a big staff of people who are loading the web pages manually every time someone requests a page? Well, when we're talking about resources in, in terms of like defending against an attack, we're talking about things like, do you have a, a, a cluster of servers? In other words, you've got a whole bunch of servers that are, that are working in tandem rather than it just being like somebody's old PC that they've got hooked up to the internet. So somewhere, right? You want to have a robust system in place, especially if you're running a big service. Imagine like Amazon, for example, or or even apple.com, right? You can have potentially thousands and thousands of people or millions even all loading the same page at the same time. And so you need to have a very robust system. So that could be uh, network bandwidth, making sure that as many people can get to that content at, at the same time as possible, as fast as possible. It could be a lot of other things as well uh, related to the, the server infrastructure. So the distributed denial of service is everyone reloading the page on the Apple website to order the new iPhone. <laughs> you know, uh, sometimes, yeah, you have unintentional denial of service attacks like that, right? Where, And Apple and many other companies are actually very good at preventing there being site outages due to perceived increased demand. There are a lot of technologies that can be used to to limit the the severity of certain types of, of attack, denial of service attacks like that. Okay, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about bots and zombies and evil maids and honeypots. Oh, I just love all this terminology. Protecting your online security and privacy has never been more important than it is today. Intego has been proudly protecting Mac users since 1997, and our latest Mac protection suite includes the tools you need to stay protected in 2022. Intego's Mac Premium Bundle X9 includes Virus Barrier, the world's best Mac anti-malware protection, Net Barrier for powerful inbound and outbound firewall security, Personal Backup will keep your important files safe from ransomware, and much more to help protect, secure, and organize your Mac. Best of all, it's compatible with macOS Monterey and the latest Apple Silicon Macs. Download the free trial of Mac Premium Bundle X9 from Intego.com today. 
When you're ready to buy, Indigo Mac Podcast listeners can get a special discount by using the link in this episode's show notes at podcast.indigo.com. That's podcast.intigo.com. And click on this episode to find the special discount link exclusively for Intigo Mac Podcast listeners. Intigo, world-class protection and utility software for Mac users. Made by the Mac security experts. So we were just talking about a distributed denial of service attack. And one way of launching this attack is by having a botnet or being a bot master and having a whole bunch of zombie computers. And this is like, this is like the walking dead or something. (laughs) Right. So bot and zombie are terms that are kind of used interchangeably. And that basically means an infected computer that is being controlled by somebody else. And that person controlling them then is the bot master and the network of all of these computers that are infected being controlled by the same bot master that is called a botnet. More and more lately, these terms are being used to describe infections of routers and things like that. So um, network devices that are being controlled by somebody. So it's not it, it could be a computer or it could just be a, a network device that's under the control of somebody else. There is another use of the term bot, and that's for automated Twitter accounts that reply to people who use certain keywords. And curiously, since the uh, the time that we're recording this, a lot of Twitter is down in Russia. We're not seeing a lot of these bots sending from hundreds of thousands of fake accounts sending exactly the same message to people to try and make these keywords trend certain things. A lot of them were against vaccines, against masks, against, you know, certain political people. And so that's a kind of bot that's a little bit different. It's kind of reacting to something and sending a message, but it's not trying to deny service. It's just trying to undermine democracy. Yeah, that's an interesting point. Yeah, bots can have multiple meanings, and, and that is certainly another another potential meaning of bot. So you kind of have to sometimes figure out, based on the context, whether somebody is talking about one kind of bot versus another. But but when you're talking about social networks, especially, and, and oh, that person's a bot, or, or gaming is another place where somebody might say that somebody's a bot, because maybe they're using automated software, robotic, you know, software to control their character or give them some special advantage in a game or things like that. Can you do that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It shows my my naivete as a gamer because I don't play that kind of game. But I didn't know you could. So you could basically have cheats that work with bots to give you extra lives or something. Yeah, something like that. Right. Or or to give you some sort of like special superpower or whatever that uh, that gives you an unfair advantage over other players in the game. That's not fair. Yeah, (laughs) that's right. (laughs) Well, and that's why people often in gaming terminology, people often accuse somebody else of being a bot because, you know, they're they're They seem to be exploiting something to get unfair advantages in a game. Okay, so here's the term that I only discovered a few weeks ago, living off the land and lol bins. And I've been waiting for this explanation. Yeah, we've we've been talking about this. This has come up in the news a few times recently. There was a a recent article on, on Hacker Noon where they talked about living off the land attacks. First of all, we have to understand that if somebody breaks into a system... Once they've broken in, they need to be able to to figure out what can they now do. And if the first thing that they do is they download some malware and infect your computer with this malware, 
then if they have antivirus software, they're going to probably detect that there's malware on their system. And that might give them a clue that somebody may have hacked into their computer. So living off the land means using the, the applications and mostly command line utilities that come with the computer that are built in to pull off different kinds of attacks or, or to exfiltrate data or do other things like that, that that an attacker, once they have a foothold that they might want to do without being detected. So is this what happens when someone gets root on a computer? Uh, you don't necessarily have to have root in order to, to get into a system to live off the land. But yeah, getting root is the sort of the ultimate level of access. Getting root means that you have full administrative privileges over the system that you hacked into. And in some cases, it may be possible to use these LOL bins. <laughs> so these living off the land binaries, that's just a fancy term for the apps, the command line utilities mostly that come with your computer that can be used by somebody who has broken into your computer. Okay. So I, I like some of these terms like evil made, and we've talked about this a while ago. This is like the Tom Cruise attack. Evil maid, so Tom Cruise is taking a shower and the evil maid comes into the hotel room to change the bedding, but sticks something in his computer. Is that it? Yeah, that's kind of the idea. It's it's somebody who sneakily gets physical access to your device when you're not aware of it. The physical access is, is the important part here. If somebody has physical access to your device all bets are off. Like they can potentially do a lot of different things to your computer. We talked recently about a vulnerability in Apple's T2 security chip that was found in a lot of Macs, pretty much every Mac that was made from 2018 to 2020. And as I was kind of looking into that, I, I realized, wait a minute, hold on. That's not actually news necessarily because we knew about the T2 chip being compromised back in October 2020. I actually found an article that I wrote <laughs> around that time on Intego's uh, Mac security blog. So this T2 vulnerability that was discovered way back then made it possible for brute forcing file vault volume passwords, meaning that even if you had whole drive encryption set up on your computer, somebody could still brute force attack it. Remember, we talked a couple weeks ago about how it's important to use a strong password to prevent people from breaking into your computer, especially on T2 Macs, because it's possible to brute force the your, your password. Now, this vulnerability also made it possible to alter your Mac OS installation and it kind of install malware and load all kinds of things like that. So if somebody has physical access to your device, then you should assume that all bets are off, um, especially if you're talking about a very sophisticated attacker. Now, if you've got an M1 Mac, they don't have the T2 security chip. There are not a lot of known vulnerabilities at this time, but you know you should try to avoid letting your devices out of your sight if you can. If you're traveling to another country, particularly a country where you know that it may be kind of an authoritarian regime, maybe consider don't traveling there in the first place, right? But if you really have to, you might want to bring a burner device, a, a throwaway device that is not your regular device, but just something that you can have so that you can you know make calls or access the internet, but that once you're done in that country, you just throw it away and then you go back to your trusted devices at home. 
So the idea of the evil maid is just that, the hotel room, you're taking a shower and someone can come in, a maid can come in who you would expect and eventually manipulate something. Right. So you, you want to try to make sure to keep your devices in your possession, in your sight at all times, whenever possible. So who is the man in the middle? Yeah, the the man in the middle attack is is uh, a type of attack that usually we're when we talk about that we're talking about a network uh, level attack where um, let's say for example that um, you are using a public Wi-Fi network you're maybe you're at Starbucks they don't require a password on their network um, anybody can just hop on well. The fact that they don't require a password to use their network necessarily means that there is no actual uh, encryption on that local network, on that wireless network. Um, that's not a good thing because that means that other people can potentially spy on things that are going on if you are accessing sites that don't use HTTPS or um, accessing other services that don't use into an encryption. So a metaphor for that is if you send a postcard, anyone can read it along the way. But if you send an envelope, it's sealed and, well, they'd have to open the envelope, but it's not visible as easily as a postcard. Exactly. Right. And, and of course, if somebody intercepts a postcard in the mail, they can maliciously modify it, right? They can change what that postcard says. And you don't necessarily know if that was something that the person who sent you the postcard made a change and sent it, uh, sent it after modifying it themselves, or if somebody along the way captured that postcard and made a, made a change to to throw you off, to trick you into believing something that wasn't true. So that's an example of a man in the middle attack. In, in a real world situation, it could be somebody modifying a postcard in a network environment. Um, that could be somebody intercepting your traffic and possibly even modifying your traffic. Okay, honeypot. I remember this from Winnie the Pooh, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, well, it's a little bit different when, when we're talking about cybersecurity. A honeypot is a system that is usually these are like things that cybersecurity researchers use. The purpose of a honeypot is to sort of attract the bad guys to see what sort of attacks they might try to see if there's any new types of attacks that people are are attempting uh, that maybe aren't well known yet. So researchers often use honeypot systems. Uh, they might be servers. They might even be a computer within your own network that might be more visible than others. So if somebody has just broken into your network, they might quickly discover this particular device and start kind of trying to break into it. And as soon as they do, that that honeypot in that particular case can be kind of a canary in the coal mine, right? It can kind of tip you off to the fact that somebody is breaking into your network. So there's, there's a couple of different purposes for honeypots. Usually they're used either by security researchers or by a cyber defense team that's the, that wants something else in their network that can help them identify that somebody may have broken in. Okay, last one, sinkhole. And I know what a sinkhole is. I've seen these videos. Someone's driving down the street, and all of a sudden, half the street just drops down about 300 feet, and the car falls in, right? Right. When a cybersecurity firm 
observes that a particular domain is being used in attacks. Sometimes the the cybersecurity firm can actually get control of that domain. Sometimes they'll go to the domain name registrar and they'll they'll point out that hey this domain is being used for this malicious activity it needs to be shut down. In some cases the good guys can actually get control of those domains. And once they do, that that server that they put at that IP address or that website, that domain, now that that becomes a, a sinkhole server. This is a server that they can use now to see traffic that was intended for the bot master, right? Or the command and control server is another, another term that's used. So they can get some more insight into the quantity of computers that are infected, um, as well as the types of communications that are common in this in that particular botnet. So a sinkhole is another really useful tool that um, security researchers have in order to, to analyze a botnet, how widespread it is, and how it's being used. Okay, that's a lot. I hope everyone's appreciated this. If there's any other terms you want to know about, send us an email at podcast at indigo.com. Until next week, Josh, stay secure. All right, stay secure. Thanks for listening to the Intego Mac Podcast, the voice of Mac security, with your hosts, Kirk McElhern and Josh Long. To get every weekly episode, be sure to follow us in Apple Podcasts or subscribe in your favorite podcast app. And if you can, leave a rating, a like, or a review. Links to topics and information mentioned in the podcast can be found in the show notes for the episode at podcast.intego.com. The Intego website is also where to find details on the full line of Intego security and utility software, intego.com.